Hey universe, what do you know? I could be right that this is my 42nd episode. Actually, I know I'm right. Because I wouldn't take the time to call out my 42 fandom if it weren't to make a point that 42 matters. And I suppose no number in the universe. Well... 42 is on the list of top five numbers out there that, with me, jive forever and eternally. So, to make this 42, well, this is an homage to all the 42s running around the universe with me. Happy 42. Well, hello, universe. It's now uh, April 17th at 9... Uh, which means that I just posted the hour-long diatribe about what? Categorizing my co-workers at the Home Depot, I guess? I don't even know what I was talking about. As always, which is why we're going to run down the list of things that you should know if you've happened to stumble into this and are listening. Well, don't. Why are you listening? Uh... You're going to ask yourself that question at least 15 times over the course of the next seven minutes of your life. So I'm just asking it for you the first time. But if you're listening, number one, don't. Number two, stop. And number three, well, at least be doing something else while you're listening. This is not intended for some level of... um, personal revelation. There is no connectivity here that is going to make you feel like, oh, now I get it. There is no long-term investment here that can bring you to a frontier of, well, this is where I've always wanted to be. Nothing of the kind. In fact, what I do propose is that if what you are doing is seeking some level of connectedness in a world full of disconnect, well, the connectedness you need to fit first is the one with yourself. I swear that's the dumbest thing to hear if you don't believe it and know it's true because it sounds like malarkey. But you got to learn to believe it because it's true. And so in a weird transitional way, unintended and completely off the cuff, huh, the uh, concept of getting to know yourself, of somehow finding the peace and tranquility of connecting with yourself, well, that's a large part of what this project was. To fill everyone in who couldn't give a shit and hasn't heard... (sighs) Apparently, including myself. Um, I used to work for a company called The Home Depot. And at this company, I was just a lowly garden associate for an entire year. And in uh, that year's time, I think I did at least top 20% employee work, if not top 10. I was one of the hardest working people there and had enough knowledge to usually be doing good work or at least needed work. So, as I left, 
I think for the most part, I had built good relationships with everybody there. I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of static to iron out with anybody except maybe one or two people. And so as I decided to leave, thinking through how I was going, oh, pause. Okay, three more yawns will be taking an official break. But as I started to try to uh, uh, imagine the way to say thank you and goodbye to the people who I had uh, become close to or the co-workers who meant the most to me or just the people who I'd had interactions worth noting. Um, well, my list quickly grew from 15 goodbyes to 30 to 45, 50, 60. All of a sudden, it's like I'm doing more than half the store, so I'm going to say, okay, all you were cool, but all you, fuck off. Well, it got to the point where it was ridiculous not to just do the whole store. And yeah, do the whole store is a Beavis and Butthead callback, baby. No, it's not. No, it is not. Instead, I felt with about three weeks to go that the decision to send a personalized thank you note to everybody had to be made right then and followed through because I needed about three weeks to get it done or it had to be forgotten entirely. And then, so did all my thank yous to everybody, because at this point I had come to realize that, well, I can't just token thank you the people that I liked, like that bitch in third grade who only gave Valentine's cards to six people. It's like, six people? God, there's 34 of us in the class. Um, I wasn't going to play that game. So, commit I did to what turned out to be one huge investment of a project. But it gave me a couple of things at the end. Pause. It gave me something um, positive to continue growing in a way that was very uh, low impact. In other words, finding everyone you still don't know their name by face is whatever, you just, you're doing it the whole time you're there. So it's not really even a task, you're just on this mission to see if you can get everyone's name down. So that was the beginning, and then in doing so, realizing how many people I still had to at least have an introduction with some sort of mean, meaning about what I was up to, because I just didn't know them. Ten or twelve people were like that. And so this is what I set out to do, was to find everyone in the store I didn't know, to cement that I knew everybody I thought I knew as who they were, and to spend enough time thinking about all these people's interactions with me over the course of a year to come up with a personalized statement of meaning that wouldn't just be, hey, great working with you, hope your life turns out great, and you marry a hot chick. Dana. So if you're going to find all the Danas that work there and know which one's male and which one's female, well, honestly, that's some work. And if they're both Dana F, well, then it's even more work. And if they're both Dana F in Department 78, well, then just roll with something uh, literally uh, non-gender specific in the description and write the same thing to both of them. I mean, 
if I'd been in that situation, I would have done something like that because accuracy and, um, and, hmm, and connection here. In other words, I didn't want to get one of the Chris's wrong as one of the other Chris's. And fortunately, two of the Chris's were in my department, but three of them weren't. So keeping track of all the Chris's was its own little problem. Keeping track of all the Michaels and Mikes, another problem. So when you get all of these names finally organized, you even have the idea of what you want to do for them. And then in terms of connection, note, little jada, quick, remember me by this. Well, it's then that you realize you have completely underestimated the amount of work involved. You think this is going to take somewhere between four and eight hours to write out 150 handwritten thank you cards, and that's not even close. In fact, as you go, you become so much more um, versed in what happened over the course of the year that you start expanding everybody's description a lot. And in some cases, you rewrite them, you rewrite them again. You re I mean, in other words, the project gets so interpersonally interesting to me that I want it to be great, or at least excellent. And because at no point in this analysis had I ever thought I would be striving for excellence, just for adequate coverage and competent representation, but now I'm getting into it. Now I'm actually connecting with people's personal notes in a way that I hadn't expected to. And uh, I've started decorating the envelopes, which will quintuple the amount of time I'm going to spend on this project, though I don't know it at, the, at this point. The envelopes become the focus at about the halfway point. And then I have to go back and retrofit all the envelopes into being cooler than the ones that I started with because... Frankly, by the time I'm done, I'm, I'm so into the envelopes, that's the game. And it's a lot of fun, but that's where this creativity burst sent me in a direction unexpectedly into an entirely new creative avenue that had to be fulfilled for everybody that took my entire week away from me. And that's where I've been. I wanted to record. I even have some snippets from the 11th, the 12th, the 14th the ninth, they're just terrible because I'm distracted and so busy doing the work on these thank you card goodbyes that I just don't have anything to share except the, uh, the snarls of the project itself as I'm experiencing challenges in both my own creative expansion and the limitations that my actual artistic abilities provide. So, why am I saying all this shit? Well, for one, because this is an interesting project for me to look back on because what really grabs me is when you do something of this scale, when you start to feel like it's okay to take a shortcut here, or yeah, that design's kind of a copy of the other one. Or, oops, the envelope's upside down, but fuck if I'm going to redo this envelope. Which you didn't do for the first, say, 40. But by 
card number 114. I mean, I don't give a fuck is the dominant response to anything at all that goes wrong. It doesn't fucking matter at this point is the exact phrase that I think I muttered 15 times as I was butchering some of the final ones from lack of sleep. And this got me thinking. Of course it matters. This is no different than the argument a foul in the fourth quarter is a foul in the first quarter is a foul in the third quarter in basketball. If it's a foul, it's a foul. If you're going to accept an envelope written upside down, well, you're accepting an envelope written upside down. In other words, you're allowing yourself to cross a line that you said you wouldn't cross, which was everyone gets at least the attentive effort that shows I didn't mail it in even though your envelope is upside down. I meant for it to be that way. Oh, no, I didn't. Fuck, give me another envelope. Let me redo it. And so the first one you actually try to turn into a clever mistake. And so it's kind of funny. It works. It's good enough. And you figure, okay, I can slide by. I've given myself the get out of free jail card for doing an envelope upside down. Now double check every envelope going forward. And then probably two, three envelopes later, you do it again. And this time you're just, this time you've done it on one that was intricate. And you can't really believe you've done it because you have been double checking and it's just three envelopes ago that you fucked up and you now fucked this one up. And so instead of redoing the intricacy and getting it right and doing it all in a way that matters to the original concept you had, no, you just grab another envelope and you sloppily do something that's half, if not one quarter of the effort of what you had done already. And just call it good enough. So your your endurance or your even your your frustration against your own mistakes. I'm only going to be able to fix three or four of my own mistakes before I'm just gonna start living with them. <laughs> uh okay, I guess. It it it's like there's this fatigue of of excellence or pursuit of it. And when it sets in, well, the project should stop. From there forward, all you're doing is mitigating the uh, diminishing energy you're willing to contribute to a project that now is on, as far as you're concerned, the downslide. Even if none of that is actually resonating in the effort and the results you're producing, if in your head you're there, well, you're there. It's it's inevitable. You can only go so long before a little snag occurs and just throws the whole thing sideways. And from there forward, it's all shit. Or however it is that your pattern of derailment, self-induced, occurs. And <clears throat> that's the part in all of this that was missing. Every next stage of, let's say, reconceiving what could be a potential uh, design for an envelope, if it was something, say, 
Um, hmm, what would be one that would be an effect that kept carrying over? Um, uh, multiple materials was a theme that I think got developed in the second half of the card illustrations. Uh, versus, say, in the first half, it was a lot more geometry and uh, perspective. In the second half, it was more um, thematic materials and um, clever um, placement. It was it was uh, because I got smarter and and more um, inventive with how you could. Um, represent somebody's name in a warehouse setting, a hardware warehouse setting. Yada yada. The overall scale of what I'm talking about is when in any creative endeavor you hit a wall of I'm done, your work really has, has should cease. But when Never you hit that creative wall. Instead, every next phase is more <laughs> more energetic in terms of your passion for what you're doing than the last one. When I say I was blowing up, it was like each time I had something look, feel, or, or just um, come together in a way that was better than expected. It served to, to produce an even better than expected result the next round. I have had moments of writing where I just kept feeling the next paragraph, next three pages, next whatever, were just amplifying. I could, I could almost sense my direction my destination more so, without having to feel a direction. Just the destination was there, and I was going to get there, and it was going to be fluid, and I just needed to let it happen. This was like, if I don't try to overthink the project, the ideas that will emerge just from the production work of doing each card sequentially to the end is going to create enough creativity to maximize my opportunities to create great cards. And it's what happened. And it, it's like I got out of my own way and just didn't try to, to go, gather more data than was necessary. I didn't need to do any research. I just needed to have fun with the project and let my creativity flow. And it turned into something so hmm, representative of me by the end, that I wanted to show my family. It just felt like the kind of thing that if you knew me well, you could look at this assembly of, of thank you gifts and say, well, yeah, there's no question who did this work. And to me, to have something both artistic and, and verbal come together in a way that I felt truly represented what I'm trying to do in this universe. Well, I mean, <sighs> job well done, right? Well, 
I know there is a 19-minute recording preceding this one that I think, again, talks about work. And <laughs> since I don't work there anymore, I'm going to stop talking about that particular place. The, um, the return karma and return energy swirls that will um, inevitably... Um, <clears throat> find their way to me from that uh, activity will be something I'll be looking for, but not something that I'll care to uh, update regularly until something from that uh, grows in a way that is noticeable. And I'll explain that when I see it. But for now, that whole thing has to percolate. And sooner or later, someone will emerge from that... Um, disorientation in a way that galvanizes their belief in themselves or a few people should actually so we'll see if that happens right but while i'm waiting on that i'm going to try let's see when when i was in star wars came out the memorial day of second grade so I was seven, about to turn eight. And I actually didn't see the movie until I was eight. I saw it sometime in July um, after I had turned eight. And then over the course of third grade, managed to see it, I believe, 11 times. And um, <laughs> why do you care? You don't. But it was the kind of movie that was so specifically dissected by all of us that every concept, every um, piece of technology, every uh, occurrence within those frames, cards, collectors, items, action figures, <laughs> whatever, it all had to be, it all had to make sense. And there was one truly weird thing that didn't make sense. And that's what the fuck happened to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And in the, um, in the way it worked for our little group was this was when the term disintegration became part of our lexicon forever. Because it was the closest thing to what happened on screen that we could truly um, ascribe to the disappearance of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And at a literalist age of eight, there's going to be no spiritual soul uh, shell of meat suit uh, finding its way to a fifth dimension of time and space that Darth Vader can't access. Nothing like that. There was going to be disintegration. Okay. So he disintegrated him. So a lightsaber can disintegrate people, right? You're a literalist. So you're going to take it to the next level. That means that what all they should be doing with their lightsabers is just running around disintegrating people. What a way better method of handling conflict than all this fighting with swords and shit. Just phew, disintegrate. Well, then what you've done is you've taken um, an interpretation of your circumstances You've taken 
that which you have seen for the first time that you can't explain, and you've gone to find explanations in arenas in which always explanations have been found before. Want to know what that big, funky-looking creature in the PBS documentary that you're currently watching is? Go look it up in an encyclopedia and learn all about it. Or whatever. It was always a point of something unknown, go to reference point, and uh, authoritative knowledge access resource uh, to discover something that then enhances your current knowledge base and continue as often as possible. Well, yeah, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the problem with disintegration, though, is disintegration is a very specific dismantling of the atomic uh, bonding and structure to uh, a literal uh, annihilation level. Um, you are not just dropped into an invisible pile of, uh, what, burlap coat? What did he wear? He wore like a robe, right? Like a brown robe. Whatever. Teach their own. Hugh Hefner style, go Obi-Wan. But that thing's sitting there on the ground, right? Just the whole explanation, it, it kind of won't work. Disintegration just doesn't hold up. And <clears throat> yet it's the group consensus for how you're going to describe what happened to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And also that it's now feature of the weapon, yada, yada, right? It becomes a part of the whole Star Wars lexicon for an eighth, for an eight-year-old um, going forward, including every lightsaber fight that goes on through Empire and into Return of the Jedi. So, why am I saying any of this? Well, because what that does, necessarily, is it creates a line on which now we all must agree to walk. That these things can do this thing, because that's what happened in the mystical... Um, what? Uh, surrender? the mythical um, point of full nirvana reached as Obi-Wan becomes a being of light and goodness. Something like that, right? And as a third grader, no way do you want that explanation. That's just hokum. What you want to know is how do you set the lightsaber to go sword versus how do you set it to go disintegration? And when do they do that in the movie. Like, you're just, you're fucking eight. Everything is about, yeah, but why and how and show me and I don't understand and show me. So, this is one of those first lies that I can remember thinking, I'm just swallowing it. You just gotta, right? Like, there's no explanation. The truth is, there is no explanation. Your query can't be answered. It is likely a, a, a special effect budget uh, consideration that instead of whatever was going to be there is now just a robe dropping because that was $6 million cheaper. I mean, whatever it is, 
it's nothing that your little developing, learning, putting it all together, figuring it all out. Now comes along this death scene that doesn't make any sense. Now he's a voice in the cloud. It's it, it's a moment at which if somebody had just said, well, it's whatever you want it to be, how do you think he died? It would have been so much more satisfying of a way to reconcile the scene and contemplate life or just instead of allowing a literalist eight-year-old to go be so literal he pounds his head into the wall you have an opportunity to let him jump on a cloud and float around and instead of knocking him that direction well you invent the internet. I, I mean, I don't know. You've, I, I mean, it was the. It's it's as if I, I've been looking, as I'm simplifying. I've been looking personally at where, when I was still simple, did I start to get complex? And believe it or not, shit like Obi Wan Kenobi's death, fuck me up. I mean, they didn't fuck me up. Well, that probably did in the movie at the time, but. I digress. Um, it was, it still to this day has never been answered. I mean, seriously, what did happen to Obi-Wan Kenobi? Would George Lucas go in there and edit that and like put in some like big old gut-busting lightsabery? Oh, Darth Maul scene? Probably not. Or maybe. Or it is what you want it to be. What do you think it is? How do you think? Obi-Wan Kenobi left the scene. Well, if I know Sir Alec Guinness, what? Henri and a little bit peeved at all the crew that keeps screwing everything up around here? Wait, was that his reputation? Probably. Isn't that all actor's reputation? I basically think of whatever Sean Connery was uh, as what all actors are. Wait. Sean Connery and Alec Guinness, the same guy? Yeah, no. Um, I'm just having really no fun whatsoever. But I obviously know who all of these actors are and the roles they play. And Sir Alec Guinness, I'm sure, is a charming man, though I don't know if he's still alive. So at this point, I'm going to retreat from any E.T. commentary because I don't know anything about entertainment, especially actors. But pause. Let's wait. Oh, no, no pause. No pause. Crossing lines. All of the <laughs> lines that were drawn by accepting a reality for uh, a description in a moment in a movie that just never made sense to me. The way that I would understand that I was going to... Um, be able to um, do similar retrofitting for situations later in life that became equally um, un, uh, undescribable in a way that you could nail it down to the truth. In other words, 
it's not that Star Wars taught me how to lie, but as I saw a universe react to false information, sloppy details, um, inaccurate descriptions, um, logical sequences that ended out in illogical um, returns, everything that was broken was just shrugged off as, well, yeah, that's the way it is. And, um, and so you, you begin to think the entire, um, the entire foundational pillars, if you got down far enough, are just bullshit. Like, there's so much discontent in the, um, responses of adults to kids' questions. So much brushing you off, so much... That's the way it is. Well, wait till you're an adult. You know, that if you haven't learned that reality is is not interesting to anybody other than eight-year-olds, everybody else is just interested in denying enough of their reality to get through their day. Well, it all started with Star Wars. But the line crossing that I see now that is bizarre to me is how easily we'll establish lines in circumstances that exist in one iteration that in another iteration, we don't have those lines whatsoever. I'm going to give you a very clear example of this. When you are... Um, living in a house that has not been cleaned for two weeks. You start to have a certain level of disorganization within the structure that becomes so pervasive, you start not giving a shit about some stuff. Like whether or not that uh, fork you left in the kitchen is in the sink or did you leave it sitting in the pie in the refrigerator. No, I don't even give a fuck at this point. You know what? I'll find out tomorrow when I wake up to get coffee. Or whatever little mishaps you may overlook because the disaster in the kitchen's so bad anyway, what's a pie in the fucking fridge with a fork in it at this point? I don't even think the pie's covered with saran wrap. Yeah, I definitely didn't cover it. Well, whatever. I'm still not getting up. You'll talk yourself into some chaotic acceptance of circumstance that excuses behaviors of your own in a way that you would never do if everything in the kitchen was up to par. Or whatever, clean your house and the little bit of dog hair you see in the corner is all of a sudden critical when four hours ago you wouldn't have even been able to pick it out of anything in the living room that was wrong. So we're constantly redrawing lines that were then allowing to slip until they get into a state of concern that we have to quickly etch-a-sketch, shake the whole scenario up and redraw lines. I hadn't seen this pattern of behavior in myself and in the world around me until about a week ago, maybe 10 days. My goal of trying to simplify and look for simple trends has been so illuminating, I cannot recommend it enough. If you are listening here, 
maybe the one good thing I've ever been able to offer because I've never, and, and hmm, I'm going to have to think about how I'm going about doing this because it's been pretty effective. But the way I've tried to analyze all of my world is am I approaching it from the simplest possible level or can I simplify it further before I actually either A, make a decision or B, react or C, overreact, which is usually what I'm trying to talk myself down from. Am I overreacting in that situation? How simple can I make the whole thing? And I found motivations readily available to be interpreted from all directions. I think I've been so busy trying to understand the unique detailed circumstance in which this occurrence is going down and what that must mean your brain imprint looks like in the complexity of what it has to have been to get to here, because that's what mine had to do to get to here. Instead of, that man's not wearing socks. He's got sandals on. It's 14 degrees. No wonder he's looking like he wants to steal those boots. I don't know. Terrible use of stutter language. But instead of finding things um, disorganized, unbalanced, the more I can simplify everything, I can see a lot more of what's there working and in favor. <laughs> Boy, am I not ready for this conversation. I didn't even think it all out. So we're going to stop right now. But I am going to leave you with one more thought. Because why not? And that is, um, if you are told that your brother-in-law has been arrested for murder and uh, and it's a random person, no family relation, your immediate reaction is either going to be what well, couldn't have been him, he wouldn't do that, or fuck, I always knew that motherfucker had something like this in him, right? You've already given his propensity for this possible surprise crime a real shakedown. Enough that if he's a concerned person that has enough of an anger issue that, you know, I mean, you could easily have decided that his likelihood to kill somebody in an act of rage is way higher than the average person or some other way that you would have a confirmation bias that, oh yeah, yep, yep, I'm sure he's the right guy. Or everything about him has said, this is impossible. I mean, there's no physical ill will in his body. He scoots spiders out of his house. He talks to ferns on his way to work, which he rides a hovercraft from the future because he invented a time machine because he's such a sweet guy. Who knows? But there's no way he could have done this, right? Well, again, our entire lives are structured in moments that are exactly like that. It's just not as easy to always see the framing as it is when, say, they tell you, hey, your brother-in-law has been arrested for murder. What? Versus, hey, your uh, back alley crazy-ass neighbor? Yeah, 
They uh, arrested him for murder. <gasps> Fuck yeah, I bet they did. How many? How many did he kill? Right? And this is such simplification of the actual concept of what you're framing your reality to be is what your reality inevitably becomes. Because if, if you think about the simplest of all, you're spit into this reality and as you open your eyes, start to hear sound, taste a bug in your mouth, whatever it may be, what's the immediate first connection to the environment you would have? Where am I? What, what is this? You're here for two things. You're here to experience and act within this structured environment that our bodies are capable of manipulating to a very high degree. And you're here to share that experience with others. That's it. So, when you get it to the simplest form of all, how well are you capitalizing on the wonder of this extremely huge playground in which to run around? And with whom are you getting that done? Are you doing both of those to the highest caliber you're capable of? Are you maxing out on engagements with the world and sharing those engagements with the great people you run into along the way? Hopefully, right?